1: i'm so thrilled to have liberty hardy and Rinsey abrams here with me today lib from well you know her from all the books writes our new books newsletter Rinsey on red or dead um, they have agreed to join me to talk about ya jesse's transcendent transcendent kingdom her sophomore novel after Homegoing, which I think was just three years ago now. I'm actually not looking at the data from you guys five. Are you the top Was it
0: F- five? It was
2: 2016? Maybe that's four. What, yeah, what year I was
1: it? Yeah, I want
0: to <laughs> say six. I want to say sixteen too.
1: I shouldn't ever go with my gut about how long things have been this year. <laughs> oh, I read it years. in 2015.
2: Uh-huh.
1: That's what it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, Lib read it in 1979 <laughs> for a release last year. I was three. That's when I learned how to read. To work. So at the top, um, even before we get into what we're going to get into content warnings for. We were making a list before. Notably, maybe the notable what's not here is there's not actually a sexual assault situation that happens in this. There is animal cruelty. There's animal death, mental health, talk of suicide, racist language, racism writ large. Um, I think those are the ones we should should really get off the top uh, of our heads, too before we get into that, maybe we'll put in the context of Homegoing, which Rebecca and I talked about when that book was announced, because it was a seven-figure deal, the book came out. It was great. Been looking forward to this. Yeah, Jesse, I think one of the most, I think you could argue, it wouldn't be insane to say maybe the most exciting writer of literary fiction work in today or one of a very small handful of people that I personally would put into that context. Um, I guess, Rince, I'm going to throw it to you first. How does it, how is this different for people who liked Homegoing? What are they going to get from Transcendent Kingdom? That's the same. That's different. How to prepare them for this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is a completely different reading experience compared to Homegoing, or at least it was for me. Um, Homegoing is sort of this multi generational epic story. You're following a family over the course of like 300 years, generation by generation. This is much more like narrow in scope. Mm-hmm. You're following one specific character, Gifty. And basically, like, the story of her life, Um, you do get a little bit of, like, transatlanticness because her parents are from Ghana. Her brother was born there as well. Um, but And now they're in the United States. And so there is a little bit of that. But I felt like, in general, it's completely different in, like, Mm. feeling and even in tone. I mean, obviously... Homegoing has some darker aspects to it that it covers, but this one felt significantly darker to me. And I felt like I even needed to get kind of acclimated to the mm. reading experience here. Um, I I think going into it, all of us had Homegoing in kind of the back of our minds. And I know for me, like, it took me a minute to sort of like get used to what was actually happening in this book compared to what Homegoing was like.
1: Mm. Lib, in a way, this one almost... If you were given ya Jessie's two books and asked which one was first, wouldn't you think you would guess Transcendent Kingdom was more like a debut novel? Tell me if I'm right or no, wrong that. No, that.
2: that does feel correct. It's not something I had thought of, but now that you're saying it, it does. It almost...
1: And tell me why I'm well, right. Okay, thank you very like, much. And now tell me why I'm like right. It feels like
2: an autobiographical first novel. Yeah, right. Even though... Yeah. I yeah. It's the science is based on the work of her friend, I believe, is what it said in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does; it sort That's of it right. feels like she's telling her own story.
1: She grows up in Huntsville, Alabama, where Jesse herself grew up. A family from Ghana. I don't know about the her mother, father, brother dynamics. I didn't do too much autobiographical research, other than the very like top level stuff. I think even on the jacket flat for this, but it feels like the really talented debut. Novel that you use what's closest to you first and then you would telescope out. I mean, one of the things that was remarkable at Homegoing was how assured it was, the size of the canvas, but also the compactness of it and the specificity and the grandeur, all kind of moving in and out. Whereas this one, as Rincey said before we got started, is very compartmentalized, like Gifty herself um, in the present tense of the book is narrating her present moment when she's a, almost ready to get her PhD in neuroscience at Stanford and working in her lab basically decapitating mice and mice and shooting stuff into their brains to see what will happen and w- what she's actually studying is, is super important. But then looking backwards on her life with the occasion of her mom uh, coming to live with her there, similarities, as Rinzi said, Ghana, there's some transnationalism, some bicoastalism, but it's really this one young woman, professional woman, emerging woman's life what else can we connect it to homecoming what what other what else what might say about how it connects to homecoming because I, I find this very difficult though it's natural to try to contextualize
0: i don't know if there is much else mm-hmm. like it's funny when you guys were talking about sort of the style of it I, to me it felt much more like a memoir yep. there were parts of it that felt so like honest that's sort of like what you're saying where it feels like uh novelization of things that jesse has gone through herself Mm -hmm. and maybe it does hit very close to home for her uh but it almost felt like someone was writing a memoir about their experiences more than anything else which is why i think comparing it to homegoing is kind of uh exercise in like (laughs) (laughs) like just spinning your wheels a little bit like it's Mm -hmm. natural to want to do it but i think there's no real good way to do it because these feel like two completely separate ideas do you
2: think that the parts of the book where she's actually writing in her diary is part of what gave it that memoir feel for you
0: yeah i think that's part of it and i think the fact that it is written in first person too Mm -hmm. um and even just like the way gifty is sort of reflecting on her life in within the story uh kind of has a bit of a memoir feel like kind of flashing back and telling her or trying to contextualize her own life based on her past experiences and trying to figure out why she's where she is now, um, based on like sort of what has happened in the past, which I feel like is very memoir-esque.
1: Yeah, she's talking to herself in moments, right? Asking herself questions, relating her own internal struggles over time, but also withholding at the same time. I think the performative aspect of like, sometimes it's free indirect discourse, sometimes it's omniscient third, whatever. This one could almost be a journal of a kind, even it's talking about journals, if it was presented slightly differently, you could imagine it as a kind of... Is this the journal... Gifty says she's writing, you know, towards the end. Like, is this what we're getting from this? Is it's it's a pretty interesting question. I think beyond here, we have to we have to shoot the 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 spoiler flare. Um, if you want to encounter Transcendent Kingdom without anything else, um, we should we should get on because even saying who the other characters are and why they're important gives away some plot. So I'm sorry, but it's for your own good that we take a quick sponsor break and come back and, and spoil the hell out of Transcendent Kingdom by Yaa Jesse. Okay, I guess plot. I was confused. I have to admit it took me a little longer than it would normally get into at the beginning. I couldn't figure out where I was, why I cared about this particular situation. Um, I think in hindsight, these opening, the opening few pages make more sense to me where Gifty has returned to Ghana while her mother is recovering, recuperating, breaking down, maybe all of those things um, on the occasion of the death. Uh, of Gifty's brother um, by overdose. And she's sent back to Ghana to spend some time with her aunt. And the inciting anecdote is her aunt picking out someone on the streets and saying, that guy's crazy. And that initiates, incites Gifty to think about her life. Um, It's not clear where she is in the moment of thinking about this. Is she in the present in the lab sometime working on mice? But I think if it has any thoroughgoing theme, it's related to mind-body dualism, the connection of the soul and the brain or the brain to the body. I think that once I realized that that was the central metaphor and it wasn't about immigration, it wasn't about gender, it wasn't about race, then things sort of came into clearer focus um, to me. Rincey, you said that compartmentalization was part of it. Where do you want to start in thinking about what this character is wrestling with and why she's wrestling with it and the way she's wrestling with it?
0: It's funny because like reading this book, it almost feels like Gifty's kind of unsure about what she's even doing mm-hmm. and why she's doing it. Um, a lot of the scenes kind of take place with Gifty in the lab and she's doing this experiment on mice uh, to try to understand sort of like the neurological impact of um reward systems and like trying to deal with ideas behind addiction and depression and things like that and it's almost as if she's kind of confused about how she got there as well as if she almost (laughs) like woke up one day and was in a lab and she's like how did I even get here um so I think that's kind of like and it almost feels like Gifty herself detached at some point Uh, from her experiences and is only now while she's doing these experiments that she's like sort of re-engaging with her life again and trying to understand basically where she is now in the choices that she's made.
1: Mm. Lib, is Gifty okay? Is she okay in this? Is this the the thinking and work of someone who's all right? Because I wasn't sure if we were going to get a breakdown from her, if she was, you know, going to, was she worried about becoming her mother who has these no other way to say it, but de- de- dehabilitating multi-week, possibly multi-month spells of just being in bed. Is Gifty worried about her own mental health or how are we to understand her relationship with how she's worried and what she's worried about? Do you have a sense of it?
2: Well, the thing I felt about Gifty first is that she felt like a really, like, a, like an older character. Like a lot of people, mm. like go through their midlife crisis and they're looking back <laughs> on their life. But it's almost like when her brother died, she was only 11 years old, and her mother took yeah. to her bed and attempted suicide, and it was like she had to become an adult right then. So now she's in she's 28, but she feels it feels like she's talking about like when she's like in her 50s, like making these decisions and like mm. this like heart like all these things she had to do in her life, um, and it's almost like. Like we were saying, like she's looking at these things, like people think she's doing the work that she does because she wants to find out about addiction because she lost her brother to addiction. And, you know, she's, Asking all these questions of herself because people are asking these things of her. It's almost like she's studying herself in a way.
1: Mm. Like yeah. she's mm-hmm. she's
2: not fully aware of what she's doing, but she's kind of looking at it from the outside. Um, and I, you know, I don't think she. I mean, she spends all her time in the lab, and she was she has a hard time with relationships, and she lost her yeah. faith, and you know, she wasn't very close with her mother. You know, they're they're not a very uh, loving, you know, sort of emotional family. And mm-hmm. so I never got the sense that she was headed for a breakdown, but um, I, I did think like maybe she was going to leave the work.
1: Yeah, that's interesting that she, she seems to acknowledge the obvious, not even metaphorization of what she's doing, like trying to study how addiction works so that she can understand her brother. But then also understand something about herself, whether it's about free will, it's about religion, it's um, about—we should talk about the title, I think, at some point, too—that part of it is about being displaced or movement, right? If one of the themes of homegoing was of forced migration, one of the stories here is about emigration and immigration, of moving from place to place to look for something. And if you think of her in the lab as trying to look for something— That makes a lot of sense, but also maybe escaping something at the same time as well. And whether or not she finds what she's looking for, maybe that's where we'll end, um, because I think the coda or epilogue or the, the, the last chapter is really fascinating here, too. But one of the central tensions is she comes from a deeply religious background to a deeply scientific profession, and there's a tension between them, but she seems to like the tension, want the tension, want to use the movement from one to the other as something. You know, what does she not like about religion, what she likes about science, and does she get from science when she wants is pretty fascinating because I think to use, I don't know, maybe maybe the the memoir that's in the back of my mind that Rinsey thinks this could have been is like something like Educated, right, which is a movement away from religion towards liberal humanism. And I think there's a similar story here, but it's not quite that simple, right, Rincey? I mean it's not just eschewing the whole thing that came before. And yeah, it's not I think, just embracing some other alternate ideology, right?
0: Yeah. I think um what eventually comes about in terms of like Gifty's life is she starts to realize that science and religion are kind of two sides of the same coin in her mind, at least that's how I felt Mm. it was being expressed. Um, And like one of the scenes that like really stood out to me, um, it was just like a short little paragraph, but Gifty's talking about um, how she had this science teacher who in high school, I think it was like a biology teacher in high school who basically, who was a Christian, she like was living in Alabama. And the teacher basically expressed this idea that like, both science and religion are all about trying to answer these questions Big questions and usually when you answer a question you're left with a million more questions Mm. and that's just your journey throughout life is just you asking these questions getting some sort of answer and then continuing to ask more questions and seek out those answers and both science and religion are trying to do that just kind of with different ideals or perspectives or whatever you have Mm -hmm. um so i feel like for gifty uh like she starts off like very heavily believing in God. And I think she gravitates towards science because she still has those big questions that she's trying to answer. And so science is a way for her to start to get some answers that religion wouldn't explore or you know, didn't want to explore, or whatever it is. Um, but then she sort of realizes that there's also limitations to science because mm-hmm. we don't have all the answers yet in science. Um, and so there's certain things that like religion will be able to explain that science can't. And there's things that science is going to explain that religion can't. And so I feel like, again, it's just like two sides of the same coin. They're both going after the same goal, but just kind of in different ways.
1: Mm-hmm. Lib, you're an animal lover. Talk to me about the mice in the lab. How am I supposed to feel about this situation? Well, Tell, tell me what she's doing and am I, am I wrong to be kind of nervous or the way that's presented is conflicted, it feels like a little yeah, bit too. Um,
2: uh, getting back to what we were just talking about first though, there is this mm. one part of the book that I underlined, like of the whole book, and it has to do with the mm. mice where one of the mice keeps pressing the shock lever, even <laughs> though, you know, because ta- she does this study where like they keep giving these mice a treat. It, uh, something addictive, it's insure, which is addictive in, in mice that drink. And then she slowly starts to replace the treat with, like, shocks, which is, like, a random thing. And some of the mice are, like, they opt out immediately. And some of the mice, like, keep checking it out. And when they realize, like, they're going to get a shock, they stop, but then some of the mice keep doing it mm-hmm. no matter what. And she's... There's this section where she's talking about, like, how unknowable the brain is, yeah. even though we've been studying it for so long. And it's kind of like religion. And the thing that I... Underlined says, um, what's the point of all this is a question that separates humans from other animals. Our curiosity around this issue has sparked everything from science to literature to philosophy to religion. When the answer to this question is because God deemed it so, we might feel comforted. But what if the answer to this question is I don't know or worse, still, nothing? And that's Hmm. what she's thinking while she's watching this mouse who won't stop pressing the lever even though he's getting a shock like every time. Um, And... As an animal lover, this was very, very hard for me to read, uh, and it actually made me cry at one point, which I mm. cry very rarely when I'm reading books. But there is a, a section where she's watching the mouse do this again because he just keeps doing it, and she talks about how um, humans are the only animals that that are so reckless with their bodies, and also how everyone else or everything else on the planet is subject to human whim, like how she's she's mm. feeling bad about this this animal that she's putting through this this test um, and then I started to cry because <laughs> I just I was like that's so true it's so sad um, so as an animal lover this was very hard for me to read uh, but yeah. it was very interesting and she also um, the science is is fascinating and um, <clears throat> the thing that I remember most about about this is I looked up this study that she mentions in this novel which is a true study about the, the voices that people hear in different yeah. countries, about how um, people with schizophrenia in India and Ghana hear friendly voices of family and neighbors, and people in California hear angry, like almost demonic voices that sound violent. And I just thought that oh. was so so incredibly fascinating. I had to Google and see if that was a real thing because it just seems amazing to me. I'm completely off track, but I just had to mention it because that's the part that I think about all the time still.
1: Well, I think what you're picking up on too, between the mice and the science and the religion, we also get extended sort of snippets of a seminar about Gerard Manley Hopkins. There's an interdisciplinariness here. Um, Clearly, Jesse herself is interested in a lot of things and that gets imbued into Gifty, who's a reader and a thinker and a student. Um, And I like, and we get, we get pieces of studies, you know, we get pieces of academic journals, we get pieces of poetry, we get pieces of scripture um, that makes it feel, even as the book is small, it feels wide ranging intellectually and emotionally in a way that I think is pretty surprising um, as well. Let's go sometime. I think this one is Kind of neatly organized around what Gifty's worried about, what she's trying to figure out around the characters, and especially the three major figures of her nuclear family Nana, her brother, her mother, and then the Chin Chin man, who's her father. I think we could talk about all of them in parts, but even as the mother's coming to stay with her during a, I guess, depressive bout, um, the focus of this is what happened to her brother, right? I mean, is that the crux of the story of trying to understand her brother's addiction and death? Or is it her mother? Is it both? Like, how do we figure out where the center of her memory and her sort of emotional journey is? Rince, you want to start? Take a stab, what do you think?
0: uh, I mean, I would say it's more her brother than her mother uh, because her mother's sort of reaction is kind of like based on what happened to her brother. Like if her brother had never died Like, would her mother have ever had depressive episodes? Like, there's no way to really know uh, Mm -hmm. because she had never really shown signs of that before, um, at least not to Gifty's knowledge. But again, she was 11 when this happened. Um, So I feel like it kind of revolves more around her brother than anything else. Because, again, this study that she's even doing has to deal more with addiction and, like, addictive reactions than depression uh not that they can't necessarily go hand in hand but i feel like she's constantly questioning like what would have happened if her brother had never died i think is sort of like the big question in gifties life and kind of what she's curious about because then like she never would have had to like raise herself as a kid Mm -hmm. um and she never would have had to see her mother go through things like that potentially and so i feel like her brother is at the center of it more than anything else yeah, yeah.
2: and she also she she also loses her religion. Like religion is such a big part of yeah. their family, and she loses her faith, or she falters in her faith. You know, when he dies, so it's definitely yeah. him. He's the center of it all.
1: And she even says at one point I, something to the effect of, um, "I don't have it. I don't have it highlighted, but like, if she she would pay any amount of money for." an equivalent of her journal, but from her brother's point of view, right? Basically just to, whatever was going on inside of him, that's the thing she wishes she had a skeleton key to unlock, whether she's doing it from a postdoc, from religion, from science, from art. She's trying to figure out what was going on with him. And his story is sad, but it doesn't seem, I'm not sure that it represents much. Like, is it a metaphorical, like the the way that he goes is an overdose of heroin brought out about addiction from pills based on a sports injury. What do you make of the the symbolism of his death? Does it mean anything? Or is it just something that happens to humans and it's hard to deal with? Like, it's not just that her brother died, it's the way that he died, but and she's wrestling with that. But I'm still kind of mulling over people lose siblings, it happens, it's very sad, and this is certainly sad, but she's interested and fascinated, I think fascinated is the word I'm looking for, in a way that takes over her intellectual life, and it's not clear to me exactly what she's trying to figure out, like, she knows he's addicted, and she's trying to understand which part of the brain it is, I guess I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to understand her desire to understand, and what are, what's the texture of it, What what is it that she finds so hard to live with um, that he died in this particular way. Do you guys have a sense of it?
0: I think part of it was because he went to rehab from what Mm. I remember. And so like he he come and he, and I think he passes away pretty soon after. Yeah. He relapses
1: 14 hours later. He has a relapse. Yeah.
0: So like, I think part of it is like that idea. Like he couldn't even, like last long enough to be able to go through rehab and like get rehabilitated so i think that's part of it is like was it even possible for him to survive Mm -hmm. after he got addicted the first time and was it sort of like an instantaneous thing of like if he didn't get these painkillers or like you know because people take painkillers all the time why did why is he the one who got addicted to them and then eventually ended up going on to harder stuff and overdosing things along those lines um but i also think it's interesting because you can basically like unravel this in so many different ways because like if his if her brother had never started playing basketball and stuck with Mm -hmm. soccer would he have ever gotten an injury like this um and also sort of like the repercussions of his death even beyond her own family but like the way the people in her town treated her and her uh her brother uh wanting to get him like back on the court as soon as possible and things like that uh because they saw what a Great player he was, but they didn't really care about his actual recovery aspect of it, and no one really bothered to pay attention to him while he was recovering to realize that he was addicted or to care that he was addicted. If they did notice anything, I think even those sort of like questions of like, there's there's so many different like ripple effects that happened, and I think kind of the it, was there any point where this could have been prevented is kind of right. like the question that Gifty is trying to answer.
2: Lib, um, I think that. Uh, Gifty and her mom and her brother all kind of experience a kind of denial like in the way that mm. he was addicted and it wasn't like an addiction at first and his mother even found pills and kind of denied that something was going on. You know, she herself is depressed but she doesn't believe in depression but we know that she's depressed and Gifty yeah. took this career because she said she wanted to do the hardest field in science that she could but we as readers know that you know, it's obviously linked to her brother dying. You know, they all seem to have like some kind of denial about what is going on in their lives. Uh, and I don't know. It's, he's such, he's such, I really, I was really struck by this part in the book where she, cause it's something you don't think about. She talks about, I think it was around the time with the journal where she wishes that she had a, a journal of, of his thoughts. She mentions about how they missed out on thinking about the good things about him and seeing all the other things about him other than his addiction um, before he died. Like that was just what he became. Mm -hmm. And that's all they sort of focused on. And he was, you know, a great guy and he was their brother and you know, her brother. And and um, they just kind of like blanked those out and just saw his addiction at the end um, and how everybody kind of abandoned him when he when it was obvious that he was addicted um i thought that was very sad and it seemed very very true um, cuz you yeah. you just see these like like the problems that he's having and and she kind of forgot to see him as a human
1: mm. yeah and there's an equivalent well an equivalent moment of like it's not talked about too much. I think Free Will is mentioned a couple of times, but this wrestling with how subject are we to the things that go on, that happen to us? How subject are we to our own bodies? How much control do we actually have? Um, it's kind of like the questions. It's either we have a lot or a barely enough, barely any control or no control at all. Which of those do you want to pick? Each one of them is terrifying in their own way. He, I mean, I guess, you know, Rincey, now that you mention it, he switches to basketball from soccer, and he was great at soccer too, right? If I remember yeah. right. He, and there's a in an incident of, um, he, he gets called horrible racist names on the soccer field and basically bows out because he doesn't want to be subject to that horribly hurt. You know, and, and so in a lot of ways, it, this race is a presence in the book, but it's not, you know, one of the main concerns. But if you deep down into his story if he's not called a horrible name and treated horribly on the soccer pitch, he doesn't go into basketball and maybe he doesn't invest so much of his personality into basketball so that if he can't play, I don't know. I mean, that racial trauma is mentioned and Gifty even says at some point I'd never heard the term structural racism, but I never imagined a place where I was treated like anything other than I was, where people would turn away from me, even in a story that's about other things the original sin of America is still there. It's still right there at the germination point of a lot of dominoes, ripples, whatever metaphor you want to use from there. What else should we say about the the way race is and isn't a primary factor here? Um, Rincey, is there anything? How, how did you understand this as a book about race and American racism, but also a very specific story about a particular family?
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting because if you hear that this is a story about like, people from africa or who immigrated to the united states and moved to alabama you're gonna expect like a whole lot of racism or at least maybe that's just my northern bias (laughs) showing Uh, so i but like that's not really the story that yeah jesse ends up telling at all and it i think it's kind of a more i don't want to say more true or more honest because obviously like everyone has very different experiences but i feel like it tells like a story of like the sort of subtle racism or kind of If you grow up in the United States as, like, not a white person, there is some level of racism you'll experience over the course of your life. And, like, I can say personally, like, the things that I experienced, I just uh, experienced and kind of just accepted it as, like, Mm. part of, like, living here um, almost. Or just growing up, like, I didn't think much of it. And it wasn't until I got older where I, like, sort of really realized what was happening. Mm. Um, And so I feel like in the same way, like, this story that yeah jesse chooses to tell is kind of like this they're not like microaggressions because he gets called like racial epithets like they're not like right, subtle right, in right. any way uh but it's just sort of like a part of the life like the same way like their father left them um they were also called racial you know these racial terms in the context of soccer games because these people were mad that her brother was mm-hmm. so good so mm-hmm. i feel like yeah jesse is telling sort of like kind of like a different side to the story of being a non-white person in the United States of like it's not always going to be like this constant barrage of things but it's just sort of like all of these moments that slowly build over time mm. that lead to uh, terrible things happening or just even a belief in yourself and um, sort of like an internalized racism that you have where you just believe that you don't deserve certain things or you're just always going to experience this thing because of who you are how, the color of your skin.
2: She also makes these amazing points about America and how, (laughs) you know, like she talks about like her classmates making fun of her uh, because of the color of her skin and because she comes from Africa. And she talks about like the the um, Ethiopia and the pictures of the children like they talk about they make fun of her like there are starving children in her country when, you know, the half her classmates come to school and they've outgrown Mm. their clothes and their shoes are falling apart and none of them have eaten, you know, since the day before but like they still pick on her for having for coming from this country where people are hungry and you know she also like the thing with her aunt at the very beginning she says that her aunt points out that man and says that that's a a crazy person as if like she doesn't think that they have crazy people in america you know like and there's some other great points about like you know she's like why are they doing this to me you know why are they saying these things to me when these are the very same things that happen here
1: I think it's hard, you know, the, the back and forth between Ghana and the language and things were this way in Ghana, things are this way in America. Um, at one point, Gifty's thinking about her her mom both struggled and persevered in America. In a, in, a, in a story about, you know, immigration, a very classic naive one about the American dream and so on and so forth, things didn't turn out like her mother would have wanted for herself, I don't think, and certainly for Nana, but Gifty is getting a PhD at Stanford, and we get a happy ending, I think, at the end for Gifty, at least with Han, um, her lab partner. How does this fit into a melting pot, American dream, land of opportunity narrative, either a complicated, naive, advanced? It feels like it's wrestling with a bunch of different questions about immigration, but doesn't seem to come to any neat conclusions. Is that is that fair at this point, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think so, because I feel like, again, you kind of see an ending for Gifty's life, but it's also, uh, you can tell, like, she still has a lot of questions that she's asking, mm-hmm. but you kind of see, like, a resolution that she's come to in certain extents, but not, like, a final resolution almost, um, and I feel like that's kind of the way all of our lives are good to go. Like by the end of, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. we're all like in our, you know, thirties, forties, whatever. And like, we still have so many questions about life and the way things are working and what is truth and what is not and all of these stuff. And I think that's sort of like an everlasting struggle that everyone will go through. Um, And I think that, yeah, Jesse is sort of, um, showcasing that and saying like even if you do succeed in these certain ways there you're still probably going to have questions about life at the end of that and you'll probably continue to have questions until the day that you die
2: did either, Lib, were you ex- oh, sorry, oh, I was going to say did either no, of you get the feeling that she was going to end up with her lab partner her lab mate at the end because from the very beginning I felt like this is where this is going like they're going to end up together hmm. and I don't know why I felt that way but I just did
1: the romantic suspense, I think, is interesting because we get several different romantic partners of different genders, too. And I wasn't sure. I guess because Han was present tense, it was more likely than the people that were past tense. I actually thought we were going to maybe get a curveball in Catherine, whose husband mm-hmm. was keeping track of her ovulation yeah. with the calendars. Maybe they were going to end up together. I don't know. Maybe I was trying to be too cute with how I thought about it. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't I don't know that I thought that, Lib, to be honest with you, though it makes sense in hindsight. Rincey, were you? did you see that coming? Did you see the writing on the wall for that one?
0: Oh no, definitely not. Okay. I felt like yeah, I <laughs> was smarter lo- than us. She's read more
1: books than we have, so She knows
2: what's going on. I just, it was just a feeling I had. Um, I also yeah. uh, the father, the Chin Chin man. Yeah, like chin I really appreciated that she said, you know, he was missing home. He went back to Ghana, and we never saw him again. Like I'm glad that she didn't mm. drag it out. Like you know, just having like the kids like think like he's gonna come back, or we already knew that they're like he's not coming back. You know, like right. we didn't have to like wait right. to find out. Why didn't the Chin Chin man make it in America? He just didn't like it. And he, he had a really like hard it, right? time. I mean, that was
1: kind of it. Yeah, yeah. He got yeah.
2: paid like nothing. He, you know, worked as a janitor and he missed his family. Like they're very, um, the, the chapters about, or the stuff where he talks about his family, like it's very beautiful. Like the, the thoughts that he has about family. So he was very sad and, and missing them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's interesting too that it's framed the way their family came together in Ghana is framed as being unusual, right? Both both um do we get her mom's actual name? I don't remember. I don't think we do I think about it.
2: But she was yeah, 30- thirty one man. when it happened, I think. Yeah,
1: she was thirty one. He was a little bit older. They tried to have a baby for a long time. Nana, the brother, was born um late in life. Both of them were kind of resigned to not getting married. It sounded like at one point, Mm -hmm. but then found each other. So there was a certain sense of being, I don't know, outside the normal stream of the narrative they were expecting. And then he came and was outside of the normal stream. And then they weren't expecting her at all. And then they leave Ghana. There's a sense of displacement, even at the beginning, it feels like that they're just not, they don't fit in quite in Ghana, even at the beginning, which I don't maybe makes it easier for um, her mom to come to America or not. But even at the beginning, it felt like it was contingent and unexpected and everyone was surprised that they had, well, we had one bit. Oh, now we're two and now we're older and now we're in America. And that kind of contingent piece of it, I think is something that Gifty is wrestling with too, is a one thing that the lab is, is about control. I guess what I'm trying to say, if you think of all the ways in which the lab is figured as the opposite of her family life, you know, it's controlled, it's isolated it's clean it's in this very um academic you know rich um non-religious space that she kind of ends up with science she loses goes away from her fa- her her father's in ghana we don't know if he's alive at the end of the book i guess and i think clearly we're supposed to think her mom has died when she lights the two candles Is She
2: de- but has she, she mentions d- that her mother d- passed away in hospice oh he should yeah yeah
1: well then, that's pretty clear if uh, <laughs> that's what she said at that point. But where Gifty ends up, as to where she begins her life, is not. I don't think we're supposed to think of it though as a neat story of progress, right? Like she, this isn't a happy story for her, or is it a happy story for Gifty? Is her life a tragedy? Is it a comedy? Is this a story of thr- survival, or is it a story of thriving, or or maybe a little bit of both? I guess maybe maybe that's the way. it's like it's not a neat binary. You don't either survive or thrive. Necessarily immigration in or in America, especially as a black woman, a young black woman immigrant, but you can do both. you can survive and thrive. It's an unusual kind of ending to this story. It feels like we don't this is not the, the kind of I don't know suspended resolution or temporary happiness that's not completely usurped but also not cl- completely subject. How did you find this as a happyish ending? happyish, sadish? I don't know. I'm still I'm still wrestling with it myself as you can hear.
0: Yeah, I think for me I I saw I saw it as a way of like, yeah, Jesse trying to provide some resolutions without answering all the questions. Mm. Um and so it felt like I would say happy ish, but I don't even know if it necessarily is that happy. I think part of it is because like you don't necessarily know what gift he wants out of life like that's sort of what she's wrestling with the whole time so you don't know if this is necessarily like a happy ending for her like you can kind of assume that she's going to be happy with han and she's going to be happy sort of embracing religion again and things like that um but like she has so much tragedy in her life now that like how happy will any happy ending be for her
1: right yeah i mean i guess lighting candles in a church at the end is usually like symbol of loss and survival rather than i made it i guess i guess i make even even as she's running her lab in princeton right it's both yeah. at the same time lib what do you think well, is a happy i story? think
2: i think it's uh it's happyish but like one thing that we haven't mentioned really is that she has a really hard relationship with her mother growing up and mm, you know yeah. the as you mentioned like they were trying for a child for a very long time and then when her brother arrived he was like the miracle baby so he was loved and she showed up many years later and she was unexpected and her mother said she didn't want her and she was very hard on her and her mother you know hit she beat her with a switch when she misbehaved and you know and then when her brother dies she said you know he was the baby I wanted and now I'm stuck with you I mean which is like a terrible a terrible Mm. thing to say and so it was it was very sad for her you know most of her I don't you know, you, you rarely saw her mother smiling or being happy or, you know, showing her any kind of affection. Um, but I got the, when she says she lights the two candles at the end, you know, I got the impression that meant that, like, she was at peace with her relationship yeah. with her mother. Mm.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I think that that makes sense. And the abiding loneliness, too, of Gifty's story is hard to, underplay i think it, the, her mother's back literally being turned to her without speaking to her for weeks on end even while she lives in the same little apartment apartment is both metaphorical and just lived experience for her she doesn't have confidants she has a very difficult time connecting to other people to telling them even the basic facts of her life you know her relationship with Raymond which seemed like um in a different version of the story a different kind of a happy ending but she can't Won't, doesn't want to, is uncomfortable telling her basic thing, telling him basic things like, does he have siblings? Does she have a family? Are we going to know things? And has to be exposed, really, Mm -hmm. um, in the moment of having her journal be found for the truth to come out. And even when her friend Catherine reaches out, it takes several efforts by Catherine's, you know, on Catherine's behalf just to get her to tell her that she's in distress. Um, And I don't know. I don't know if we're supposed to think that that's going to be different going forward to her. Um, is that the kind of thing she's going to carry with her? It seems like it's become a part of her. It's a part of her personality. Can she overcome? Can she do the things she wants and hopes maybe people can do with addiction? Can she overcome it by tr- hacking her own brain or taking a drug or getting a or finding a coping mechanism? To undo these behaviors she knows are destructive. She knows it's destructive not to, for her mom not to go to rehab. She knows it's destructive for her mom not to have, you know recognized there was a problem when Nana was hiding pills in the goddamn light. If you're hiding pills in the light fixture, you have a problem. I think that's we all should all know that at this point. Um, but that the sort of denial and not wanting to admit to what's going on because of the deep shame, the shame is so embedded, and yet only said a couple of times, where's the shame coming from Rincy? do you have a sense of like that as being the roadblock to her saying anything to other to anybody else how do you where did the shame come from how do you understand the formulation of shame that so informs gifties worldview and how she interacts with other people
0: i think part of it is like again going back to her brother when he was dealing with all this stuff they never talked to anybody about what was going on and even after he died um like they didn't really acknowledge his addiction Mm. in like the funeral and they talk and she talks about how like they had like a funeral ceremony in Ghana or her father had a funeral ceremony for Ghana and they never explained what actually happened to him. he was just Um, sick, right? Exactly sick, yeah. And so, like, I feel like the pride thing is maybe a cultural thing. I don't want to just assume Mm -hmm. that, uh, but I feel like I also see this a lot in Indian people. Um, Mm -hmm. So, like, you kind of hide your shame and you try to put your best foot forward. And even sort of, like, church life can sometimes be like that, too, of, like, you're not supposed to really talk about the things that you're struggling with with certain circles and stuff like that. And so I feel like it comes from that. Um but she also like kind of struggles herself because she always talks about how she doesn't want people assuming things about her based yeah. on her past, which I think is also a very honest and realistic response. Like if she tells someone her brother has died of an addiction to overdose or that her mother has depression, they're going to start assuming things about her and the Work that she's doing and all this stuff, and she doesn't want that burden put on her. Um, at the same time, so I think part of it is like that, but I also think that you do start to see her take those steps by confining in Han and even just like saying things like "My mother's in town" is like a yeah. huge step <laughs> <Right>. for her. <laughs> right? Yeah,
1: it's like a huge revelation. It's like you could feel a weight come off your chest when she's. It's like oh, there is a little. There's a crack in the door for her to let to literally let people to to let people in. Lib, what do you think about? Gifty as a character and what her motivations are and how she understands herself.
2: Well, I think she doesn't... Part of it was that she didn't like how people reacted when she told them that her brother had died. Like, she didn't want their pity, and she didn't, you know, like how they reacted. And I think a lot of why she kept things to herself had to do with her church, like how the church kind of turned their back on her brother when he was addicted. He was, like, there... He would be called on stage all the time, and they would talk about how great he was and how amazing he was at sports and, like, bring him up. And then when he... Became an addict, like they just turned their back on him. And there was also the part where she overheard those women saying those terrible things, not yeah. just about her yeah. brother, but about about black people in general, you know, and like what a horrible thing to to hear, you know, as a child. And I think that's why she started like keeping everything to herself. Um and, you know, I think, yeah, I think that we're supposed to see her marriage to Han as like she is finally like, making this effort now to, to be more open.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was encouraging when he joked with her about her former life as a, I can't remember what the Jesus freak or whatever the, the appellation was that mm-hmm. he used. And she kind of rolled with it, right? She didn't let him get away with it, but also didn't wound her at the same time, which suggests a kind of flexibility and openness that we hadn't really seen from her before. I mean, and also I guess Gifty's right to be guarded. So much of what, so so many people have done and said horrible things to her and her family based on finding out things about her. Why would she think mm-hmm. that a good thing could happen by telling someone the truth of her experience? All all of the almost all of the data suggests only crappy things will happen if you do it, and yet you still have to try if you want to have connections with other people at mm-hmm. all. And that I guess there's a there's a catch twenty two there. Like you're going to get hurt, but if you don't try, you're never going to get healed. You're never going to give someone a chance to be a part of your life in a constructive way. And she didn't really, I mean, when's the first time you feel like she, was it when she goes to Ghana and her aunt basically embraces her with open arms and says she's proud of you without really knowing her and even knowing all the shit that's going on in her life? Like, that felt like a real turning point, too, that there was someone that seemed to care about her. And I, I guess in my Methodist upbringing, we called unconditional love of, mm-hmm. of, a, of a certain kind. It didn't seem to matter. And... That was fascinating as a moment as well. And then she gets back on the plane. Um, she was, I, I wanted a short story about the, the, ma, the, the aunt after she puts her back on the plane and goes about and lives her life. I wanted to follow her around for a day. I found myself uh, wanting to know too. What else do you, what else strikes you as being notable, um, both from from the writer's point of view, but also from the story's point of view. Which else do you want to? Are you thinking about, or, or stuck with you after you read it? Lib, you read it a long, longer time ago, so maybe the things that have stuck with you longer are, are a better, t- a better uh, story of uh, what's interesting here.
2: I think the character she was closest to was her cyborg mouse.
1: Yes. Yeah. Her cyborg mouse, who had like, I don't know, some sort of lacutus of Borg head thing, and was limping along to the to press the button, um, and. That was a success, right? Is success her? Ultimately, her her experiment was a success. I think. Yes. The, Did I read that right? She
2: flashes. Uh, if I understand it correctly, she flashes some kind of blue light, and it stops mm-hmm. the mouse from pressing the lever that gives them the shock.
1: Yeah, an anticlimax too. It feels like. you know, like she's <laughs> yeah. been doing all this work for years. She's basically demonstrated that at least in mice, if you do this thing, you can get them to stop this destructive behavior. It should be triumphant, but it's sort of an afterthought or. I don't know. I thought that was interesting, too. How how did you take that? Were we supposed to be happy
2: about that? Yeah, she She also, at the end of the book, if I'm remembering correctly, she kind of reaches this point where she's like, I'm all done with school. Like, I'm done with work and I want to get this over with early and I'm going to wrap this all up. She goes to her professor, right, and says, I want to finish this year instead of taking another year. Um, so mm-hmm. the whole mouse thing was she was like, I'm done. Basically, <laughs> you know, she, it's kind of, <laughs> it kind of seems like, you know, she was done thinking about the mouse and she was done thinking about yeah. her brother yeah. and everything that was going on with that at the same time. There was like a very quick thing. She's just like, that's it. We're done. I'm going to I'm going to work really hard and get this all over with right now. And that was kind of like the mouse yeah, and thing too.
1: Either she got what she was looking for or she no longer cared about that particular thing. She no longer was interested in looking for that particular yeah. thing. And I'm not sure I quite have a sense of which of those or maybe both to some degree. Rincey, what's stuck with you over time? Um, what's, what's going to stick out to you? What What are the things people are going to look for or remember? Do you think when they read Transcendent Kingdom?
0: Um, I think for me, Besides the whole like faith and religion sort of dichotomy that's presented here, um, I think just sort of like you don't really see very many complicated family relationships like this. And I think partially not like it kind of explored in the same way of sort Mm. of like her mother said all of these horrible things to her, but also did raise her to a certain extent and allowed her to like help her become, like, the success that she eventually ends up being um, and sort of, like, the back-and-forthness of that, of, like, them having these moments, like, sm- small moments, often very brief, uh, very so, far So, so
1: brief, but
0: yeah. all but the more
1: richer for being brief, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Right? And so, like, I feel like you don't really see, like, that sort of mother-daughter or, like, parent-child relationship of, like, very, very brief but very rich and, like, almost... I don't know if I would call it loving necessarily but it feel it has like that sense of lovingness uh but also like this but still being completely like distant and uh detached from each other and living completely separate lives like kind of like being both at the same time is something that isn't really explored often yeah. in my opinion.
1: There's that tornness that Gifty clearly feels between her mother's way the culture she came out of and how she's understands what it looks like to be a mother and to have a daughter versus the culture that Gifty grows up with in America. Cause I think at one point, you know, she and Nana say, I love you to each other. And her mom says in tweet, like that's white person's nonsense. Like she, yeah. she feels very torn about trying to come to understand her mother on her own, on her mother's terms, but also wanting what she wants a mother to be and not getting it and trying to reconcile those two things at the same time. That, that was extremely poignant to me. I mean, I think, any, anytime you capture something about the closeness, distance, contradiction, dichotomy paradox between children and parents, you've done something really incredible. Because I think it's so hard to capture that sense of intimacy and distance um, of loving and, and disdaining and can't standing, but also cannot quitting um, that she captures in this way of trying to understand and trying to deal with, but also not needing necessary or ultimately maybe not maybe transcending the need to understand exactly what happened and just accepting it, right, of the transcendent yeah. kingdom um, is one way of thinking about it, too. What else? I don't know. I I guess it's so exciting to see a book that's so different than what you expect from a talented author, because now the third book, you could. Ex- I, I'm ready for anything. Yeah. I, I don't have an expectation. I I really could believe um, almost, uh, I think about, Rebecca and I talked about this on the, other, on the Book Riot show, about how Colson White had every book, you don't know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really very much... Um, it widely differs and it's exciting to see that here lib any get what what do you want to what would you love to see jesse try to do next do you have a sense of
2: oh anything um, what
1: she anything right? i was yeah, surprised I
2: to not see this on the national book award long list but oh, that was yeah. exactly yeah. my reaction when homegoing also didn't make the national yeah. Book award long list so um you know uh, i but i would I would read anything that she does. You know, it's all—it's all amazing, and and I think Homegoing won like all kinds of other awards, and this will probably win all kinds of other awards. Um, but it's almost like it's so good that it's like I don't know if this makes any sense. Like it's so good, like why even bother giving it an award? Like everybody just already knows. Does that make any sense? <laughs> it's like
1: she's already in Meryl Streep territory. Yeah. What's at? This street Streep being Streep.
2: Yeah. You know? yeah. No. No. Yeah.
1: Need, yeah that's interesting. I because again, I haven't read nearly as many novels as either of you guys have read last year. But I think of the one, and I've, there's a lot of books I've really liked this year. I love The Vanishing Half. I like the King Kong. I've talked about them in other contexts. I think this is the best I've read this year. Um, I, I don't know what other contenders are, um, even as the scale. I, I don't know. It's like she's got a, she went acoustic a little bit after Homegoing. Because I, yeah. I was expecting it to go bigger. And the name itself, Transcendent Kingdom, you don't get any bigger than that in terms of a title. And I was very careful not to read blurbs or anything. So that it started out. Uh, so small and really didn't get a whole lot bigger was exciting um to see Rinsey what do you think what what's your takeaway going forward anything for Jesse you'd love to have her tackle
0: um it's hard to say because like these two books again are just so different from yeah. each other that i feel like anything that she chooses to tackle as long as she's interested in it she'll make you interested in it <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so i feel like I'll, i obviously like i'll read anything that she writes moving forward um it would be kind of interesting to see if she like maybe explores something outside of family maybe like a friendship sort of situation yeah. Yeah. um and seeing if she can like sort of wrestle with the complicated nature of that because like the first two books were very heavily based in families so mm. it would be interesting to see if she tackles something like a friendship or even more like delves more into like relationships like partners and stuff like that
1: oh yeah that's a good quick like so she's done these are both homegoing and transcendent kingdom are firmly literary fiction right um i guess the zag would be to do kind of a more of a genre thing Like do a straight up romance or a mystery, Rincey? How about a Yah Jesse mystery? I'm sure you would
0: read it. Oh, I would. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I would for sure read that in like as fast as you could get my get me a copy of it. You were saying? I'm sure sure she
1: could do it. Sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) You were saying
2: that you know you were expecting something a little splashier because of because of homegoing, but I think that we often uh, just assume that because books come out in a certain order that they're written in a certain order and oh, you know maybe, she, hey, there maybe you go. she was working on this one before but like if you had to pick between that's the two to point. make your first splash like you would have picked home going
0: <sighs> smart
1: yeah i think that's a real i'd love to know that for sure um home the degree of i mean both of them are difficult books the degree of difficulty the thing that i stick with home going is like that's so hard to do for anyone. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard to do if you've had 15 novels under your belt. So some of it was, you know, the, the half gainer off the high dive of that. Though I've come to appreciate even in talking to you guys about how small, s- sophisticated smallness is its own art, right? Mm-hmm. And that she can yeah. work on multiple sizes of canvases, I think is the most exciting thing about it too. Sci- speculative fiction would be, I mean, she could do whatever, whatever is possible,
0: Yeah, I think Um, it's interesting too because I didn't even think of that liberty until you said it. But I also have said like this to multiple people. But I feel like homegoing is slightly more commercial, so it feels more like sellable. Like homegoing was a book that I literally handed to anyone who asked me for a book recommendation. I guess I'm surprised to hear that. Tell me more about that. Uh, I mean, I think I I think just because. the the overarching at least to me the overarching nature of the story there was like a plot and there's like a driving force behind it um and this one feels like because it's so much more condensed in scope um and it's so much like quieter and it wrestles with like these big ideas that i don't necessarily feel like i could recommend this like this isn't a swiss army wreck for me but homegoing Mm. is a swiss army wreck for me um so in kind of that way like with liberty saying like homegoing is kind of the easier sell so to speak i feel like you can read homegoing and see like oh this will definitely sell numbers so this will get her the writing contract that so in book two and book three she can do kind of more deeper or denser topics yeah it
1: has Homegoing has important book written all over it I think that's fair yeah. as well mm-hmm. like this is straighter literary fiction yeah well that's fantastic uh, we're I haven't I don't get to talk to you guys that often do you want to give me a couple give me and I can edit this part out if we flounder so don't we're, we're live <laughs> to tape but we, it doesn't have to be live to tape <laughs> Why don't you give me a couple upcoming books you're excited about or recent releases, Lib? I know this is—I really want you to talk about the Orchard. I guess is what I'm really saying. I want Lib to give me a few minutes on the Orchard and Rincy pick whatever you want. So I'm going since I already pigeonholed Lib, Rincy, gather yourself while while Lib tells me about the Orchard. Okay,
2: so the Orchard is a debut novel by David Hopin. Um, it is. So brilliant. I will not be able to do it justice because I am not very smart. However, I am very enthusiastic, and this is my favorite book of the year. It is, mm. um, and give the he, comp, give okay. the comp. Come he on, must give it be to me. i so give it tired to me. of this, but like. I've read The Secret History every year since it came out, which is 28 yeah. times now, uh, and I read every book that is compared to The Secret History, and this is the very first book I have found actually worthy of that comparison. That
1: is what I like to yes. hear, Liberty Hardy. Give it to me straight <laughs> However, into my veins. Thank you so much.
2: So, it's so fantastic. It's about a young uh, Jewish man who grows up in ultra-Orthodox Brooklyn, and he goes to an all-boys school, and his parents are very strict, and he, they're very religious. His dad gets a job in uh, this sort of, like, glitzy Miami suburb, and he moves his family there, and it's a whole other world. I mean, he might as well have gone to a different planet now. And all of a sudden, mm. he's going to these parties, and he's going to school with girls, and he's doing drugs, and he's drinking, and he's having a great time, and his p- parents are not very happy about all this, but he's made these this... Um, he's friends with this, like, this very ultra-cool clique, like the, the big clique in school, yeah. uh, and he gets to hang out with them all the time, and he falls in love, and... You know, it they they have all these great discussions with their rabbi, like they have this very small group about religion and faith and but like at the same time like he's slipping in like you know, going to church and doing all this stuff and so it's like, is he going to you know, follow these kind of bad boys down their path, or is he going Mm. to, you know, eventually come around and, you know, get himself together again, or is he even the same person that he was when he, you know, moved? Um, It's, it's so good. It's so, and it's like all this brilliant stuff that I, I can't even explain. Um, but I can't, like I said, I can just keep waving Muppet arms about it because I just love it so much. And I would give it the National Book Award this year. Uh, but oh. I don't know if it's, its it comes out November 17th. I don't know if it didn't get nominated because it's so far out or if it just didn't get nominated. But that is my pick for NBA this year.
1: Look. Someday we'll do an episode about the secret history, and we can nerd about it forever. <laughs> I am also chasing that dragon, right I've been there for special topics in calamity physics. I've been for all the ones they say mm. is the next secret history, so some of those are
0: good but ver- nope
1: some of them are good, but this is the real McCoy it mm-hmm. sounds like um all right, Rinsey, she gave you runway. Where do you want to land the plane
0: um I'm gonna go completely left field and I'm going Absolutely with a book great. that uh is already out because I don't read quite as far ahead as Liberty yeah. does. Well, come
1: on. <laughs> That's not fair to either of us,
0: but yes, thank you. <laughs> um, so I'm going with Winter Couts by uh, David Heska, Juan mm. B Whaden. This is basically like I, I will. just say I'm like just starting this book now, but it Great. like hooked me from page one. Um, it takes place um, in this reservation in South Dakota. You're following this character named Virgil, who's basically like considered like a local enforcer. And so it talks about like the complicated nature of like tribal um, council, basically only having a limited amount of power in terms of like how and what they can pr- prosecute. And then like the federal agency having purview over everything else but refusing to do any work on the reservation and so he's basically just like a guy who goes and beats up bad people on his reservation um and so he uh gets called in uh to basically stop this one native person who's bringing heroin in to the reservation now. And so obviously like the tribal council wants to like stop this immediately. Um, and the twist is that his, I think it's his nephew. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's his nephew who ends up overdosing on heroin. So it becomes very serious. And so this is like kind of the perfect blend for me of a character driven story, but still a thriller. Um, It has like sort of these grittier drug, if you read a lot of like drug based stories and stuff like that, like it has that grit to it. I that sound, <laughs> mm-hmm. that was a weird way to phrase it, but I think you know <laughs> like these sort of like drug cartels, like it's trying to stop these uh, drugs from getting into these specific areas. Um, if you like that sort of grittiness, but you still like character driven stories, then I'm really, really enjoying this one. And I feel like this is definitely gonna be like one of my favorite mysteries of the year, if not like a favorite book of the year.
1: Mm. I the one I'm looking for it's next on my shelf that I haven't gotten to is um... Uh, Leila Lamy's next book, Conditional Citizens. Um, it's a memoir. She's a mm-hmm. writer. And I think, I can't remember if, um, did she get nominated? Yeah, She got nominated for stuff. one of the big awards. She's won yeah. stuff. But I think this is her first um, memoir. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the Moore's Account, Pulitzer Prize finalist. Um, oh, and The Other Americans and National, she got two. She got two um, uh, short lists there. And she's waiting to break through at some point, too. That came out yesterday. Yep. So it it, got, it it showed up on my doorstep. Have you read that one? I have but?
2: not. have it here.
1: Okay. going to read it. All right. Well, there's one that you've read that I am going to read that you haven't read. That's about as far as I I'm ever going to find myself. Um, <laughs> that's not a good bet for me at all. Uh, also, Homegoing. or sorry. Uh, Transcendent Kingdom, 200,000 print run for the wow. first, uh, first print run. And
2: I think it got um, pushed. So they expect this. I think... Wasn't it supposed to come out in June? I believe it did get pushed. It was supposed to come out in June.
1: Yep, 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 yep. When Rebecca and I were doing our um, preview show in the spring before COVID, um, it was, I think, a June 26 release, uh, if I remember correctly. So that got pushed. Hope it makes it. Um, Maybe we'll we'll have to talk about another book sometime. This was too much fun not to do again. Rincey and Lib, you can find them. Links in the show notes to all the books and Red or dead. We'll talk to you later.
0: Bye. Bye.